Is your 2023 starting without a bang? Has yawning become your dominant characteristic? You are not alone. This year, millions will be diagnosed with low energy or low E, but there's a cure. Now through January 12th, join Planet Fitness for just $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. With clean, spacious clubs and tons of equipment, you can boost your energy after just one workout. Leave low E behind and find your big fitness energy at Planet Fitness. Join in the free PF app for $1 down, $10 a month, cancel anytime. Deal ends Thursday, January 12th. See Home Club for details. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom. This week we have an uh, excellent academic guest named Ralph Ellis. Um, I was introduced to him by Ken Goodwood, who is a, a guest a few weeks, maybe months back now, who wrote uh, UFOs in the Bible. And I, I was treated to watching um, his YouTube show with uh, Mr. Ellis on it. Um, so the basic theme of the show is going to be history. Uh, you might think of it as alternate history. Uh, Mr. Ellis will uh, explain to you that it's not alternate history. It's probably the real history. And we're comparing it to the Bible, uh, not because this is a biblical show per se, but because that is probably where most people are, are familiar with dates, times, places of events that have been translated or presumed to be historical. Um, but before we get too into it, I, I want to introduce uh, Ralph Ellis, thank you very much for joining the show. Good to be with you, Jeff, and uh, yeah, looking forward to the show. Excellent. So Ralph's coming to us from the UK. You can probably uh, hear the accent. Um, and yeah, I guess before we get started, why don't you tell the folks a little bit about yourself, your your background, your work, uh, and sort of your approach to things. 
Yeah, I've been researching this for, for 40 years at least. I'm a bit of a polymath. I, I've done a lot of professions, a lot of jobs, um, from mineral surveying to computing to lorry driving to um, uh, airline captain, so you name it, I've done it. Um, gives me a good uh, grounding in the subjects we need to study history. Been studying history for 40 years with a particular bias towards uh, biblical sort of uh, history because uh, uh, I was never very happy from a very, very young age that most of the biblical history cannot be found in the historical record. So there is enormous great lacuna here. Um, we have these texts, they seem to be authoritative, but nothing that they say pretty much can be found in the historical records. All of the famous characters, whether it's from the Old Testament or New Testament, are missing from the historical record. And that didn't seem good enough to me. It wasn't likely that they could go missing from the historical record without some manipulation of the text and we ought to be able to find them. So, you know, you've only got a couple of possibilities here. Uh, either it's all fiction, as some people claim, of course, the mythicists. Um, I don't go along with the literalists who just say, well, there's the book, you know, so believe it. No, sorry, no thank you. Um, so the median route is we need to look for these people in the historical record because we've missed them, either because we're looking Looking in the wrong location or we're looking in the wrong era. So that's what I've been doing and I've been researching this as I say for 40 years. I've written, I don't know how many books I've written now, it's, it's 12 or 14, it's something like that and they cover all of the um, Old Testament, all of the New Testament. Uh, today I think we're looking at the New Testament which is from my um, the King Jesus uh, trilogy which is now a trilogy in five parts because it keeps expanding, <laughs> but there you go. Um, and the main one we look at, um, yeah, that comes from, from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Ah. Uh, if anyone remembers that book. Sure, uh, Douglas Adams. trilogy in four parts, yes. Um, and I think the main one we're look, looking at today is probably uh, a Jesus King of Odessa. So that, that's what we're going to be sort of looking at. Okay. So anybody who's new to the show, uh, and I welcome you, uh, but if you are, there's no way I can do justice sort of to my journey. Let, let, let's, let's just say that, you know, I, I have a pretty good education. I have an interest in history. I've read a lot of history. I've read a lot of historical fiction. I am not a theologist at all, though maybe now I am after two years of doing this show. Um, I was, I'm not a religious person. I'm not a biblical scholar, though I'm getting clo ever closer in, in, in some way, anyhow. Uh, and the history doesn't match with what I learned. The, the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, doesn't match with what I learned. Obviously, as you get further into the New Testament, it starts to, because you were more of in a, in a historical age where where things started getting written more often. Um, we've had uh, Chris Ams talk to us about the, the Gnostic Gospels, uh, the, the Apocrypha. We've had uh, Reverend Jim Willis talk to us. Uh, and so, you know, if you're interested, there's probably dozens of shows that, that, that touch on this and I can't possibly do them justice. Um, 
But here is my understanding of history. And I went sort of, sort of through this thumbnail with uh, Reverend Willis uh, a couple weeks back, probably uh, mid-July 2022, because I, I never know when shows are going to drop. And I just dropped that show, uh, I think, a week ago, um, which would be the 23rd, probably, uh, of July. Anyway, so if you go by the Bible, day one, the word, uh, day six, humans, day seven, rest. Uh, somewhere in there, we, we start to get uh, begetting and begatting and uh, possibly, well, not possibly, in the, in the Bible, the uh, sons of God uh, found the women of uh, daughters of Adam uh, fair and uh, started copulating. Um, somewhere along the line, uh, Abel got killed by his brother Cain, who, uh, despite being person number four, was banished to a land with a name with goat herders. Uh, somewhere along the line, God said, Woo, the, the, these half-breeds are terrible. They're giants. They're malevolent. Maybe they were already giants. Maybe they're whatever it was. Something's bad. We're going to have a flood. We're killing everyone but Noah. Noah uh, saves a few members of his family and, you know, a bunch of animals. And, uh, and then when they, uh, beach, uh, on, on the top of a mountain, perhaps, um, uh, Noah has a bunch of sons and, and some of those sons go on with various followers. I, I guess there was some more begetting and begetting that occurred and they populate the, repopulate the world hither and hither. You get, you get Canaan, you get Ham, you get Shem, um, things like that. Uh, and, uh, at some point you get to Abraham, um, which if I under now, Reverend Willis said that Abraham from Adam was about 2,000 years. I mean, if you go by the, the, the Jewish New Year, it, it's more like something like 57, 58, 100 years ago. So all of this happened in either 120 years or 2,000 years. Somewhere in there, there's a, there's a sec, God has a few other falling outs with uh, destroying Babel. Uh, so the decentralizing languages. Um, you get the, 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 the Israelites. Sent in Egypt, and then then uh, and then you get the Exodus, uh, uh, which I know that uh, Mr. Willis is going to cover. You know his his historical belief on that. But the, the reason I mention is because in studying Canaanite mythology, I came upon that Judaism wasn't really monotheistic anywhere near fifty eight hundred years ago, fifty seven hundred years ago, or by the Abrahamic covenant. It was monotheistic much later, maybe like. Uh, 1200 BC or, or something, something like that. Anyway, then, then, then that takes us to Jesus. And, you know, there's not a lot of evidence of Moses, not a lot of evidence of a, of the state of Israel as being a hundred thousand or a million people going through the Sinai. Uh, there's not a lot of, we're, we're not sure if there was a historical Jesus, historical Moses. And, I, and I've spent a lot of time doing this thumb scratch. And now I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Willis because this is where He's going to take us on a more, uh, probably a more even keeled historical approach and try to fill in the blanks and make the dots connect, though some of the years, names, and places might change and may shock you. But that's okay. This is Garden of Doom. Shock is, you're here for shock and awe. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Mr. Willis. I, and, and please, if I did anything terribly wrong there, please correct it. If it, if it helps your story, otherwise you, you can just go with your narrative of history. Yes, well, um, that is the standard narrative. My narrative is it's not like that at all. Um, although it is. My narrative is exactly the same. 
it's just interpreted in a slightly different fashion. So I'm coming from a, a Gnostic atheist background, so I'm not looking at this from a religious perspective. I'm just looking at the true history that might underpin the biblical text. So if, we, if we're going back to the Old Testament then, um, yeah, all of the Old Testament can be found in the historical record. If you know what you're looking for, and if you are able to open your eyes to the truth, because the truth can be shocking to anyone who's invested in the biblical story. And that's a um, lot of people. So, yeah, there's a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, um, shall we start with Adam and Eve? Um, I didn't start with Adam and Eve because I never thought when I started this exercise you could find any um, historical sense within uh, the Genesis story because it's... Uh, it's so ahistorical. I'm um, game if you are. Later on, <laughs> yeah, later on, it struck me that there was a lot of actual historical evidence within there. Uh, I mean, the first thing it says is that um, a garden came out of Eden uh, to water the garden, and from thence it was parted into four uh, branches. Well, there is only one river that does that in this region, and that's the River Nile. So we're looking for Eden within the river Nile. Uh, um, and we're looking for something called Eden or Aten uh, within the sort of Egyptian uh, region. Uh, we're looking for an Adam and an Eve who are naked within the Garden of Aten or Eden. Um, and there is such a historical couple, a king and a queen. And they are Pharaoh Akhenaten and Queen Nefertiti, who, if you look at their imagery, were always naked within the Garden of Aten. And within Egyptian, we always call it the Aten. That's their god, was called the Aten. Um, but it's spelled with a double reed glyph, so it's more like the Eton, mm. the Garden of Eton. And sometimes it's called with a D, so it's sometimes it's called Eden, the Garden of the Eden. Because all of these, uh, within Egypt, the gods always had a garden. They built a garden for the gods, which was an enclosed, uh, like a kitchen garden for a big manor house or something. Um, and in the east, over in Persia, it was called a paradise, which is where we get the word paradise from. Right. And it was a garden for the gods, and it was the Garden of Eden. Um, and, of course, the god of the Israelites is called the... Atum, the same god as Akhenaten. So the Israelite god has oh, four or five names. He's called El Elohim, Allah. Even in the um, uh, Old Testament, he's called Elah or Allah. Um, he's called Shaddai. He's called Yahweh. And he's called the Adam or the Atum. That is the Israelite god. It's the same as the god of Akhenaten. And remember, Akhenaten was was the first of the monotheists. Uh, so he had a monotheistic religion, exactly the same as the Israelites. Um, and that they were something to do with this story. And if you look at the um, Genesis story critically, it is a copy of the hymn to the Atom, the great epic poem made by Pharaoh Akhenaten, which celebrates the dawn of a new day. It doesn't celebrate... The, the dawn of, of, you know, the creation of, of the world. Mm. It's only a dawn of a new day, 
but obviously someone looked at this story uh, and we know that they knew about this because uh, um, the hymn to the Artem is within Psalm, Psalm 104, I think it is, is the hymn to the Artem. So That's it's found its way into Psalms. When, uh, approximately, if we know the years, when was the rule of Akhenaten and Nefertiti? About 1320, uh, 1350 BC. Um, so the, this is out of sequence. Someone saw this story and they thought it looked like a creation epic. And so they stuck it at the beginning of the um, of the biblical text, but it shouldn't be there. It's completely out of uh, out of position. So we actually then go back in history when we go towards the um, Exodus narrative. Um, so Genesis is completely out of uh, out of position. So the Genesis story is merely the hymn to the Arten, and it's all about Pharaoh Achnaten because he was central to this uh, Israelite story. But but we can get a better idea of that, and that's all in my book um, uh, Eden in Egypt. But we get a better idea of that perhaps if we go into the Exodus story, because we get sort of more information within the Exodus story. And that again is totally historical, but not in the way that people want it to be. And right. so people sort of, they turn a blind eye, I think. They look sideways and, and, and pretend they haven't seen it, but it's quite obvious uh, where that story came from. Because uh, Josephus Flavius, who is Judaism's greatest historian, uh, said that the Hyksos, uh, sorry, he said that the, uh, yes, that the Hyksos pharaohs of Egypt were our people. Can, can we back up so for a second? He and directly uh, links. What, 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 who are the, what does Hyksos mean? That's a word I, I only heard yes. when I listened to your YouTube. I've never heard that before. Uh, so what is, <laughs> what or who are Hyksos? Right, so this is going back into the uh, 19th, um, just before the 18th, uh, just before the 18th dynasty. So the 17th and 16th dynasties of Egypt. So we're talking about 2000 BC all the way up to about uh, 1580 BC. Okay. Egypt was divided. So uh, a people had apparently come into northern Egypt who were known as the Hyksos, uh, uh, from Mesopotamia, from the sort of Haran region in Mesopotamia, and taken over northern Egypt. And they were known as the Hyksos. Uh, some people call it the Hyksos. They do in America quite a lot. They call it the Hyksos. But anyway, uh, Manitho gives both pronunciations, and I tend to call it the Hyksos. Is Haran, and is that the same the Haran Hyksos that was in Turkey or Anatolia? No, Haran is um, Haran is in Mesopotamia. Okay, so uh, where, in relation to like Baghdad, where is Haran? It's north of Aleppo. Okay, Aleppo, north of uh, Damascus. So it's in modern uh, in modern Turkey, actually. Oh, so so uh, it is. But it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's uh, abandoned now. It's just a historical. Because that's that's where they a lot of people think uh, that's where a lot of people think Abraham was from, Haran, Anatolia, yeah, Turkey, the city of Abraham. So there's a there's a direct connection there, of course, because yes, yeah, the city of Abraham. Okay, good. Um, and the Hyksos, uh, the name is supposed to be the kings of the foreign lands, 
um, but Manetho gives two um, derivations. He calls it the um, shepherd kings. And I think that's correct because it's spelt with the shepherd's crook as the uh, hieroglyph that they use. And sometimes the kings of the mountains uh, and the captive kings as well, he translates it as. But the main one we normally take is the shepherd kings, is how we call it. And of course, that links up with the patriarchs who were always known as shepherds. So we have a direct link there. And Joseph is saying that these hyksos were the Israelites. And everyone looks sideways at that and they pretend they haven't seen what Josephus has said and they deny what Josephus maintains, that the Hyksos were the Israelites, because it has implications for the uh, Old Testament story, because it means that the Israelites were an Egyptianized people. Okay, they'd come out of Mesopotamia, but we know that the Hyksos were fully Egyptianized. Mm -hmm. um, they spoke Egyptian, they venerated most of the Egyptian gods, etc., etc. You can't really tell much of a difference between um, the southern Egyptians and the Hyksos Egyptians in the north. Uh, many of the texts we have that come out of Egypt are Hyksos texts. Um, the mathematical papyrus is a Hyksos text. Hyksos sounds like a Greek word. Is, is Hyksos sounds like a Greek word. Is it, is it Greek in derivation? No. No, it's, it's pure Egyptian. It's called the Hyksosite. Gotcha. Um, which again is either kings of the mountains, or I say kings of the pyramids, or it's the shepherd kings. Um, so in Egyptian, it's Haiko Kasut, and it's definitely a, an Egyptian word. Um, I suppose it might have some derivations, but we're not very sure on that. But the thing is, the Hyksos had an exodus, and it just so happens that their exodus is a very, very familiar event to anyone who has um, read the biblical story. So this is from real history. This is nothing to do with the Bible. This is an account of the Hyksos Exodus, you know, just the bullet points. So we had a group of people who were known as shepherds. Uh, they wore earrings and curly side locks of hair. Um, there was darkness for three days, storms. Um, there was... Uh, uh, what else did they have? I'm beginning to forget. Um, well, water, right? The, the, the Red Sea called, parted, right? Uh, yes, it did. Yeah, we, we, yes, yes. Um, one of their kings was called Jacob. This is from real history, nothing to do with the Bible. Okay. One, of their, uh, one of their pharaohs was called uh, Jacob. Um, there was a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. Um, there was an ash fall. Uh, as you say, there was a tsunami, so the, the waters were parted by a big tsunami. Um, there was a civil war with the other Egyptians down in the south, and eventually about 500,000 people, supposedly it's probably less, were kicked out of Egypt, started from Pyramasi, linked to Jerusalem. Oh, and on the way to Jerusalem, they destroyed Jericho. Sound familiar? Yes, it does. That's nothing to do with the biblical story. That's the historical story of the Hyksos. 
And so we have these glaring similarities which people refuse to look at in the, the Jericho story, which everyone said is, oh, this means that the Exodus is nonsense because the Exodus uh, um, was, Jericho had been abandoned for several hundred years before the Exodus happened. Therefore, the Exodus is completely wrong. Well, hold on a minute. If we re relocate the Exodus story back into 1580 BC, which was the time of the Hyksos Exodus, then it, everything fits because Jericho was destroyed by the Hyksos when they left Egypt and went through to Jerusalem in about 1580 BC. So everything fits as long as we just move the timeline a little bit, you know, 300 years uh, earlier within the timeline. And we get things like um, the, the plague events, which were a darkness for three days, an ash fall, pillar of fire, pillar of uh, smoke, uh, and a tsunami. And those are what you might call black swan events. So these are events that are so out of the ordinary that a chronicler could not invent them outside his experience completely. But here is not just one black swan. Here are five black swans, all linked to a volcanic eruption. Now, how would a chronicler in that early era know that all of those events were linked somehow to a uh, maritime volcanic eruption? And of course, we're talking about Santorini okay. here, um, Thera, the biggest eruption within recorded history. Uh, in of all time, I think. I think it's probably the, the largest eruption. Bigger than uh, Krakatoa? Santorini. I think it's bigger than Krakatoa. Okay. Yeah. I think it was bigger than Krakatoa. Uh, much bigger. Probably about 10 times bigger. Wow. It was a large eruption. This was an island that was north, north of Crete, which exploded uh, in circa 1600 BC. And of course, it did produce a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. Um, it did darkness for three days. Yeah. It did provide an ash fall. And remember, the biblical account of this is very, very accurate. Moses said, un, uh, God said unto Moses, take you handfuls of ash from the hearth of the fire and cast it up into the sky and it will become a small dust over the whole land of Egypt. There is no, no better description of the long-range fallout from a volcano than that verse. And then Josephus backs this up by saying that the air was so thick to breathe that many of the people were inwardly consumed. And of course, if you've ever read any of the stories about um, the news reports about Mount St. Helens in America, you will know that is exactly what happened. The air was so thick with dust that people could not breathe it. Well, I think everyone remembers uh, the, uh, the volcano the, in Iceland that was about 10 years ago that the, they couldn't have air travel yeah. for about a, a week or 10 days because the, the skies were so covered with, with volcanic ash. I don't know about the health effects, but I, I, yeah. I imagine that, the, the, you know, they... they it's they, just the same know. because um, you, you get shards of silica and shards of silica are not very good for jet engines and are not very good for your lungs yeah. either. So you get inwardly consumed. Can I ask you a um, question that's they pro very 
I'm sorry. That's part of the probably part of this story. I, I don't know. I, I I read a book. I don't know. 25 years ago, where it was talking about Akhenaten and Moses, but that Moses was Tuthmosis. There was either Akhenaten's uh, brother or 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 confidant, and, and you know, a counselor or somewhere, and that's. And that Moses isn't Moses because Moses didn't become a name until after the Bible. That Moses was like it's like some it's like calling someone son. It was like Johnson. That's a name. Son is not a name. Uh, that Moses is like the the second part of a of a name. And there was more to it. But is there anything yeah. to that 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 Moses may have been a tough Moses that was somehow associated with Akhenaten, an acolyte or a relative, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I'll come on to that in one minute. Okay. Just to finish the Exodus, uh, we have the parting of the water. Um, and of course, that is a tsunami. That's exactly what a tsunami does. A maritime tsunami, especially a subduction one, like the uh, big volcano at Santorini, um, the first thing that happens is the sea disappears, especially on a nice shelving coast like uh, on north of Egypt, um, uh, around the Reed Sea. And so the sea just disappears. And so the army can go wandering out across the seabed, picking up the fish you know, for their breakfast, wondering what the hell is going on. You know, the sea's just disappeared. But then, of course, the sea rushes back in again and captures the um, Egyptian army and sends them all to their deaths. So do you suppose that somebody... So all of these events. I'm sorry. Do you suppose that somebody in the, in the, in the Hyksos camp New, I mean, I assume that the volcanic eruption didn't come from nowhere, that there were probably tremors and earthquakes and sea quakes. There may be somebody in the Hyksos camp knew what was coming and they said, this is our time to go. You know, this, this is going to happen. We just need to wait by the, the, the Nile uh, or the Red Sea and we're, we're going to be able to cross just bide our time. Let's, let's get over there. And by the time we cross and they come, you know, there's a pretty good chance that they're going to be swept away that, 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 you know, sort of like how a lot of ancient peoples knew the, constellations and how the, the earth worked, that there may have been their version of a geologist or, you know, uh, in that group? Um, I think there was um, a political dispute that was caused by the eruption uh, because there's a 20-odd year gap between the eruption and the exodus. And this is backed up by the historical events that the this civil war went on for quite some time. It went on for uh, two, two pharaohs worth. Um, so, uh, I think what happened is they had this big eruption. They had these two peoples um, who probably got on fairly well together, but they had this enormous great eruption, all of the plagues that hit Egypt, and someone was to blame for it. And of course, the Hyksos would blame the southern Egyptians, and the uh, southern Egyptians would blame the Hyksos. It's you and your strange interpretation of the gods, etc. And this is what caused the absolute civil war between the two of them. And that civil war festered for about 20 years, and then it initiated itself into the exodus. And I think that's what exactly happened. So it was a consequence of the volcano, uh, but it was a, a political dispute, a religious political dispute, um, caused by the volcano, and that caused the exodus. Okay, so it was the, the, the timing yes. wasn't lucky, but because the volcano sort of erupted the existing fissure, uh, the, 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 the timing, 
I mean, it, it was lucky, but it wasn't lucky. I mean, they, they, it, it was because of the volcano and, and, and just because that the timing worked out that, I mean, again, the crossing into the sea and, and then it coming back when the Egyptian army was supposedly on their tails. I mean, probably in reality, the Egyptian army was probably, uh, you know, several days behind. Yeah, I think that's um, a, a little bit of um, artistic license that, you know, um, they allowed the, you know, the seas receding allowed the hikesos um, uh, to run across the, um, the the beach and, and then then caught out um, the Egyptians. They, I, I suppose you could postulate that they knew about it because, as you said, the um, uh, volcano at Santorini had been huffing and puffing uh, for a number of years years before it finally exploded. So people who lived along the coast might have seen that the sea recedes sometimes in a minor earthquake. Mm-hmm. And, and so they might have realized that if the sea recedes, well, it's going to come back in again, because we've seen this happen on a few occasions before on a smaller scale. Uh, um, but, you know, maybe the Egyptian army hadn't seen this before and were, were completely mesmerized by it uh, and caught out by it. But okay. it's quite clearly uh, um, a story about a, a tsunami. It's not a miraculous event. Right. I, I'm also assuming that they, that the uh, Hyksos or Israelites walked across, as, as it is in the Bible, and just ignoring the, the more likely fact that they had rafts or boats or whatever, and, and uh, you know, and those things erode over time or were re- reclaimed by the Egyptians or other people or were repurposed for you know, homes, you know, uh, they use the wood for other stuff. So, um, so I, I guess I have to uh, acknowledge that, that I was making some assumption that I just caught myself in as I was thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. But the, uh, the people who went on this exodus, when you were talking about Moses, uh, uh, yeah, he was, um, uh, he was an Egyptian character. He was a brother of Akhenaten. So the brother of Akhenaten was called Tuf Moses. Uh, uh, and so we end up with two brothers. We have Akhenaten and Tuf Moses, and we have Aaron and Moses. Mm-hmm. They are the same two brothers. Now, this, of course, is the, the wrong era, because the big exodus, the Hyksos exodus, which, of course, after you know they escaped from the tsunami, etc., the Hyksos went on to destroy uh, Jericho, which is a historical event. We know the Hyksos. Uh, kill, uh, killed, destroyed uh, Jericho. Um, but to get to the Akhenaten era, we've got to go on another 300 years. And so how is that achieved? Well, if you read the books of Manetho, so Manetho was a 3rd century BC Egyptian historian, and he gives us the history of uh, these events from a historical perspective, not a religious perspective. And Effectively, he is saying we're two exoduses, not one. And what's happened is, is the uh, Torah has blended these two, it's conflated these two exoduses into one exodus. So under the Manetho uh, chronology, there was the big exodus, which we've just described. That's the um, exodus of the Hyksos people uh, out of Egypt. And remember that Joseph has said that the um, Hyksos were the Israelites. And then we came on to the smaller exodus of the 80,000 lepers and maimed priests who had been exiled to the east bank of the the, the Nile 
to the quarries on the east bank of the Nile. And it's quite obvious when you read his account that he's talking about Akhenaten here. So Akhenaten uh, was this heretic pharaoh who had his own ideas for religion, set up his own cult, um, who instituted monotheism. He got this band of um, acolytes and followers, and they all marched off into central or Egypt and set up their new cult. Anyone doesn't really know the history of Akhenaten and what he was doing and what it looked like and what, what actually happened in um, Akhetaten or Amarna, which was his city that he built on the east bank of the Nile. Um, if you watch the Netflix video, um, Wild Wild Country, it's about a an Indian guru. I forget what his name is now. Who was that guru? Anyway, he, he gathered together a group of people, a number of followers, uh, several thousand. It was quite a big event. And he went off into the wilds of um, Oregon, I think, was it? And built a new commune there. And the story of the guy setting up this commune in this new location in Oregon and how it grew and became prosperous and then it, it succumbed to infighting and destroyed itself um, is exactly the same as the story of Akhenaten. And so you can get a very good idea if you watch that film. It's a little mini-series made by Netflix. If you watch that film, it's a very good idea of what Akhenaten was doing. He had these group of followers and he set up this new regime. Remember, he was pharaoh, so he had quite a lot of power, sure. although he was actually only uh, uh, in a co-regency with his father. So his father was still alive <clears throat> and effectively he had been banished, I think, by his father because he had all these strange ideas about religion, all his monotheistic ideas about the Aten. And remember that his Israelite God is called the Aten, exactly the same. Um, and so I think he was banished almost to this um, new location, barren location on the east bank of the Nile, which was empty. <coughs> they had to build their own city because there was nothing there. Um, and so all of his followers had to go around making bricks because there was nothing there to make their temple, to make the palace, to make the city. Um, and hence you get in the um, biblical account of this, you know, the um, well-known phrase by, uh, by the Pharaoh, that they don't give his name, of course, say, you are idle. This is talking to the Israelites. You are idle. You are idle. You must make mud bricks whether you have straw or no straw, if you remember that one. That's exactly what Akhenaten was saying to his followers. So the only thing that the biblical story doesn't say is that the Pharaoh concerned was actually the leader of the Israelites. He was the Israelite leader. He was Aaron. He was Akhenaten, who was goading on his followers to make mud bricks because he wanted this new city. Because there was nothing there, it was a barren right. plot of land on the east bank of the Nile. And that is what um, Manitho is talking about when he talks about the banishment of the 80,000 lepers and maimed priests to the quarries on the east bank of the Nile. Because 
too many people take this literally, including Josephus himself, who says you could never, never have so many lepers. And lepers cannot become priests because, you know, uh, priests must be um, must be perfect. They must be whole. They cannot be lepers. And he goes into this big tirade about how Manitho must be wrong because they cannot all be lepers. But of course, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about theological lepers. He's not talking about, about real lepers at all. He's talking about some group of new uh, uh, acolytes of Akhenaten who have this new religion and they've been infecting people with this new religion and they've been banished to the east bank of the Nile right in the center of Egypt uh, where they set up this new cult and their new city. So he's and insulting Akhenaten them. He's not saying that they're literally Akhenaten. maimed priests or lepers. He's basically saying that the, this kook, these kooky cultists. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what they thought of because Akhenaten was was the heretic pharaoh, you know, because he had this heretic religion that he was trying to uh, force upon Egypt. Um, but of course, later on, when his father died, he became the pharaoh of Egypt. He actually got the control of Egypt. And so he, uh, uh, the heretic pharaoh, uh, okay. the pharaoh who was deleted from Egyptian history. So nobody really mentions, even um, Manitho doesn't mention him by name. He only mentions him by pseudonym uh, because Akhenaten was deleted from history and and his city after they left it was, was destroyed. And so now we have the second exodus. So in this hippie commune, I mean, literally it was, it was a hippie commune on the east bank of the Nile, uh, exactly as it's portrayed in, in Wild Wild Country. Uh, in the Netflix series. And they did walk naked. This is Akhenaten of Nefertiti. They walked naked within their garden, like some hippie commune leaders. All of their images show them naked, walking through the garden of the art. I have two questions um, for you. Of course, when this little experiment... Yeah. Uh, one is, and they may not be related, but uh, one is... How did sort of Nefertiti, uh, you know, last through through history? She might be the second most famous uh, pharaohess, or fa you know, I don't know what the feminized version is, but Cleopatra then Nefertiti. And two, before I forget it, it's interesting that they were a commune of hippies because we know or we think that Jesus's stepfather, Joseph, was, I think they called it an Enesen or a scene, which is sort of like a Cathar, which, which they were sort of like hippies. Uh, they, 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 they were sort of like, you know, you don't need a temple or church to, to worship. You, you sort of do your own thing. So it, it actually sort of is almost like a straight line, if you want there to be, between this Akhenaten hippie commune and what, you know, uh, Joseph, uh, I don't remember what his name was, his last name was. Um, but uh, Jesus is, uh, we'll just call him stepdad, um, you know, what his belief system and his community was. So uh, I'm not sure if those are, if the second one's actually a question, but just put a question mark at the end of it and you can work them in whenever, whenever it comes into, when it fits into the narrative. Well, there, there would be a direct link, of course, because I say Jesus was descended from these very same people. He was a pharaoh of Egypt in exile. Um, and so, oh, yes, he had the 
the heritage of Achnab and the Israelites. He was, you know, of the line of Judah. And if you look at this history, the line of Judah came out of the Hyksos and came out of Pharaoh Achnab. That's why um, they invented uh, monotheism and why the god was called the Artem, because their religion came out of Akhenaten. That's why um, so many um, religious texts um, came out of Egypt. I mean, we, we, it's, again, it's not taught very well, but, um, you know, the, the Joseph plot uh, within the Old Testament came out of the tale of two brothers. The Nile turning red came out of the destruction of mankind. Uh, the Ten Commandments were, was effectively the same as the judgments of the dead. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, comes from the Maxims of Annie, uh, as does the Lord's Prayer comes from the Maxims of Annie. Um, Psalm 104, as we said, was the hymn to the Arten. Um And uh, Proverbs 22.20 is the instructions of Ammon and Mopet. Uh, um, they, they all come out of Egypt, you know, so there were, there were very, very strong links. Well, remember, even from standard history, biblical history, the Israelites were in Egypt for like 400 years or something. Of course, they picked up most of uh, the sort of history and theology of Egypt. Of course, they spoke Egyptian, which is another of my contentions that Aramaic Hebrew is a daughter language of Egyptian. So Israelites today are speaking Egyptian. It's the same language. Sure, and people probably... And like if, a dictionary. Yeah, listeners listening to this are going, well, that sounds crazy. That wouldn't happen. Really? What, what religion are most of the people in South and Central America? Catholic. Uh, you know, the, the, the Europeans didn't get there till about 500 years ago or so. Well, most First Nations people are probably Christian as well. Um, so, yeah, the... This happens, <laughs> you know. It 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 happens now. Yeah. What? Why is four hundred years any different then than than it is now? If anything, times time moves faster now. Absolutely. Uh, so okay. So I just wanted to. Uh, and, and, yeah. and and Joseph, um, uh, if you remember Joseph, him of the coat of many colors, uh, he was prime minister of Egypt, and That's probably right. the high priest of Egypt with his coat of many colors. Uh, of course, he spoke Egyptian. You would not attain those positions of power. Uh, if you, you did not speak Egyptian. Same with Moses. He was the uh, chief of army commander uh, of the Egyptian army. Now, you don't get that from the uh, biblical text, but Josephus Flavius wrote his own Old Testament. It's sort of hidden in there when when they have Moses defeating um, Og of Bashan, you know, the, a giant. Uh, you know, uh, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't just get a, a philosopher, a shepherd, uh, uh, beating beating a... a King and giant, uh, at the, you know, without some training. Well, yeah, I mean, Abraham does does the same. But I mean, Abraham, even in the Old Testament. Well, in the Old Testament, it says that um, Abraham had three hundred and eighteen trained servants right. under his command, which sounds unlikely for uh, a shepherd. But there you go. Right. But again, if you read the uh, works of uh, Josephus, who has the equivalent stories, but they're secular instead of biblical. Josephus says that Abraham had 318 army commanders. Well, that makes more sense. Not trained servants, it's army commanders. And if they were uh, centurions, 
He had an army, a standing army of 30,000 people. Now, what, what shepherd has a standing army of 30,000 people? Um, oh, yes, a Hyksos shepherd king, of course. Ah. And so it's quite, quite obvious that Abraham was a shepherd king. He was a Hyksos. And of course, remember, one of the pharaohs uh, of the Hyksos was called um, Jacob, Jacob, Jacoba and Jacobam. They were pharaohs of Egypt called Jacob. That's where the biblical Jacob comes from. Uh, they were Hyksos pharaohs of Egypt and they were shepherds, just as the patriarchs were shepherds. Um, it all links up. But the reason why people will not look at this and they shy away from it is because it changes the era in which this happened. So Jacob, uh, uh, Jacobam would have been uh, circa, I don't know, 1700 BC. Uh, but more importantly, it means that the Hyksos were indeed Egyptians. Hyksos Egyptians, fully Egyptianized, spoke Egyptian, venerated most of the Egyptian gods, would have been um, polytheistic at that time, didn't become monotheistic until the time of Akhenaten, the reforms of Akhenaten. Uh, and then they had to sort of constrain that polytheism within the confines of Akhenaten's monotheism. And that's why the Israelite God has six names, and some of those names are plural. Um, it, it all begins to fit, but it doesn't fit within the standard narrative. But it does fit very nicely within the historical narrative. If you just say that the Israelites were the Hyksos, um, they had a, a big exodus in 1600, well, 1580 BC. Uh, they were thrown now, They came back into Egypt under Joseph, him of the coat of many colors, of course. Uh, and there is good reason to suspect that Joseph was Yuya. And the best evidence for that, I think, comes from um, Ahmed Osman who wrote a book called uh, Stranger in the Valley of the Kings, which was his uh, research into Yuya. Now, who is Yuya? Yuya is the patriarch of the Amarna family of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. He is the, you know, the great-grandfather of the whole of that dynasty. Uh, and he was ginger-haired, of course. That's another theme that uh, runs through my books, that all of these pharaohs of Egypt were ginger. Ramesses II was ginger. Uh, Jesus was ginger haired as well. Just to be uh, clear, ginger hair is famous. like orangish, reddish hair. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> uh, very ginger. If you look at Yuya and if you look at Ramesses II, they are very ginger. Uh, if you look at Cleopatra, the famous Cleopatra, she is very ginger. Uh, uh, if you look at um, Jesus and the best um, image I found of him. It's a very early one. It's about third century uh, on the Hukok elephant mosaic. H-U-Q-O-Q, -Q, Hukok elephant mosaic. That is an image of, of Jesus when, of course, he was in, in Galilee. Uh, and he is ginger. What's the significance of the, of the ginger hair? I, I call them the, the ginger monarchy. So we, we have a monarchy in course, the idea of a monarchy is to maintain your bloodline throughout the generations down the millennia. And this monarchy appears to have managed to do so uh, down many generations through many centuries and millennia. 
uh, because I, I trace them across, because Mary Magdalene, of course, she was ginger as well. If you look at any um, Renaissance image of Mary Magdalene, she is ginger. That's true. And she, she ended up in the south of France in Orange, a city called Orange. <laughs> yeah, I just figured <laughs> um, that which out. Which is linked to gold, of course, because, yeah, Orange means, means gold, or means gold. Um, and they set up an independent principality in the south of France called Orange, who were very different, of course, to the Catholics. They were very, they were more like Protestants, even back in the, you know, the early centuries. And their earliest king or, or, or prince, as, as he should be known, that we know about, uh, was the Prince of Orange, Prince William or Guillaume of Orange. And uh, he was ginger. And of course, he was kicked out of very well, well, his descendants. This was the 8th century AD. Uh, they had this independent principality. Um, and they lasted all the way up until the time of Louis XIV. And because Louis XIV was a Catholic, he kicked them out of France. And they went to Holland. Mm -hmm. So all of the Dutch people, all of the princes of Orange in Holland, came from France. They came from Orange. And of course, they all ginger head. So we have this sort of spread of these monarchies throughout um, this region, all the way back from the time of, of Yuya and beyond, um, who, who was the patriarch of the uh, uh, of the Amana, Amana dynasty of Akhenaten. So yeah, it's, it's a big. And this is the sort of uh, people that you make stories about, you know. You don't make stories about carpenters. You make stories about kings and queens and their dynasties. And this, this is a story of the Hyksos dynasty, who were the Ginger dynasty. Interesting. Um, I, so it's all a little bit different. So yes. the, yeah, go ahead. Uh, all right. So um, when you think Egypt or even Canaan, you don't really think of red-haired people. Did, did they? Is the implication that, that they came from, I don't know, Sweden or, or Greece or Ireland or, or, you know, where you more think of maybe like redheads? No, I, I think it's the other way around, that the redheads came from Egypt and they populated ah, Sweden gotcha. and uh, Scotland. Uh, uh, because we, we, we have the story of Scotty Chronicon, uh, which is the ancient history of the Scots. And this goes back a long way. It goes back to the 14th century in Scotland. It goes back to the 6th century uh, in Ireland. And the story of Scotland and Ireland is that a queen, Queen Scota, was forced out of Egypt at the time of Akhenaten. So we're coming back to the same pharaoh again. Um, so tracing our history back, it seems quite certain that Queen Scota was Ankesenamun, who was a daughter of Pharaoh Akhenaten. And she had married Pharaoh Ai, who was related, he was the army commander, but much older than she was. Um, so she was the, the wife of Tutankhamun. But of course, Tutankhamun died, so she married uh, Ai, who became the next pharaoh. And they were pushed out of Egypt on an exodus. Be the same as Akhenaten and Nefertiti had to go on a, the minor exodus out of Egypt. Uh, um, so did Pharaoh Ai go on an exodus, but he went on a ship-borne exodus. And so he was given 60 ships 
this, this is according to Scottish Chronicle. This is what they say in, in the Scottish texts. And was told to leave. And so they sailed west and they went across to the Balearic Islands uh, in uh, next to Spain. They went to the um, Ebro Peninsula, which is the river that um, is on the east coast of Spain. And it's exactly the same as the Nile. It's the only other delta land in the whole of the Mediterranean. So it was exactly the same as living in the Nile Delta. Um, but they say they were always attacked in, in the Ebro district. And so eventually they went to Ireland and then to Scotland. And this would have been in 1300 BC. So this is very early. Um, and so we have a direct connection, of course, between Egypt and Scotland. In that case, hmm. it also sort Which of uh, pre-recorded history. Yeah, it also sort of uh, you know it, it modernizes, but also sort of supports. So, like like the Atlantis myth that everything sort of came. Atlantis is sort of Egyptian and populated all these areas. I mean, it almost if you reverse it and romanticize it and fictionalize it, it's almost the same story, just thirty-three hundred years ago or thirty-seven hundred years ago, not yeah, you know, whatever, ten thousand years ago, whenever Atlantis was supposed to be. Uh, I think myself, Atlantis was the Thera Santorini eruption because Santorini, uh, the eruption of Santorini is exactly the same as the Atlantis story. Oh, okay. Um, so Santorini was a, a circular island with uh, circular canals in exactly the same shape as uh, uh, Atlantis, and it did blow up and, and sink beneath the sea. So I think it's identical. Well, I've been to Santorini, but it's much different now. It's a tourist location. You either ride donkeys or a giant cable car <laughs> yeah. up, up and down. And, and very expensive. Yeah, I, I, I rode a donkey up and I took the cable car down because the donkey's feet are always slipping and shit. And while it doesn't bother them any, it sure did bother me. So <laughs> anyway, story nobody wants to hear about has nothing to do with alternative history. It's it's completely to do with my history. Um, so anyways, different story, different day, different show. So, okay, so... Uh, Nefertiti, I guess, survived, I mean, I guess she survived only because her, you know, she was one of the, I guess, modern discoveries. They, they, they found her tomb and I guess that's what sort of allowed her to survive it. So, okay. Um, I don't want to get too bogged down on that because I want you to keep with yours because we were, I, I mean, we were getting close to is Israelites uh, meet, meeting Jesus. Yeah, moving up. Well, I do a lot of uh, other histories. So a lot of this is take, taken from my Tempest and Exodus book. And then I do a whole book on, on uh, King Solomon, which was uh, King Solomon, Pharaoh of Egypt, because, of course, I put the story back into Egypt. And then I move on to the uh, New Testament story. Okay, perfect. I and mean, I you, you, you can take it wherever you want. Um, yes, we were at the Akhenaten and, and Tuthmosis and, I mean, we the Hyksos. And I, I guess at this point we were sort of on the – the second exodus, the smaller one on the east bank of the Nile. Um, so I, I, you can pick it up from there if you like. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, we, we could finish that off first. So we had Akhenaten and Nefertiti on the uh, east bank of the Nile, as Manitho describes in his book. And they were kicked out. So this disagrees somewhat with uh, classical Egyptology. Um, but Manitho says they were actually kicked out on a Exodus, um, which actually I think does conform with, with the evidence we get from um, Barna, um, because 
Tutankhamun's uh, Akhenaten and Nefertiti were not buried in Amarna. Their tombs were, were empty. They were never used. Uh, we have no evidence for them down in Karnak uh, or the Valley of the Kings. Uh, they keep talking about KV 55, but I don't think it's got anything to do with Akhenaten. I think that's probably one of the minor monarchs who's, uh, I can't remember his name, Smenkara. It's probably someone like Smenkara, who was a very temporary uh, pharaoh of the Amarna dynasty. Um, but Manitho says they were pushed out on an exodus, and that explains why we, we can't find them in the historical record. And so in terms of the Genesis story, they were pushed out from the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden, and of course they had to put clothes on because they could no longer walk around naked when they were forced out on this exodus. And they had to flee north, and they went to uh, Pyramacy, which of course at that time was called Avarice, it wasn't Pyramacy. Um, no, hold on, it was called Avarice during the Hyksos era, uh, uh, but uh, it was abandoned at that time in the 1320s uh, BC. And so Manitho says that they went to this former city of the Hyksos called Avarice, and they rebuilt it um, somewhat and fortified it um, because they thought they were going to be attacked, of course, by the uh, southern Egyptians. And that was the end of Akhenaten and Nefertiti as far as Manitha was concerned. So we don't fully know exactly what happened to them. Um, did they stay in Pyramacy? Did they move on to somewhere else? Like, you know, uh, because there would have been lots of relatives over in um, uh, Jerusalem because it said that during this time, they called upon their relatives in Jerusalem to come and help them. And 200,000 people came down from Jerusalem to help them fight against the southern Egyptians hmm. um, and have this major battle. So there were direct uh, historical and family links with the people living in, in Israel at that time. That makes sense. Um, although, so although they were living in Egypt, they owned most of Israel at that time because the Hyksos had left Egypt and they had populated Israel. And so therefore they'd taken over that region as well. Um, so yeah, that was the end of the Akhenaten and Nefertiti story. So if we're going to look for the tombs of, of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, you're either going to be looking in Avarice, Pyramacy, or you're maybe going to be looking even in Jerusalem or somewhere like that. Where's Pyramacy um, or Avarice? It's, it's uh, north of Cairo, so it's in the Nile Delta. Okay. Um, it's about, oh, I don't know, 100 kilometers north of Cairo um, in the um, Nile Delta. Gotcha. Uh, it's near Zagazig. If you've ever been there, it's, it's Zagazig, basically, okay. uh, which is quite a largest town in the, in the Nile Delta. Um, and, and there's quite a lot of archaeology there because it was a huge, great archaeological site. It's, it used to be a great um, Egyptian city before they took all of the temples and they moved up to Tanis, um, which they did in uh, circa 1000 uh, BC during the um, United Monarchy. But that's another story. So we move on to the New Testament, and um, I link them up to this same family. So to, uh, to Cleopatra. Okay, Cleopatra was a 
Ptolemaic pharaoh, but um, there are obviously a number of links with the previous pharaonic uh, dynasty. Uh, plus, I link the uh, um, the Greeks up with the pharaonic dynasties because of these exoduses that went out, like the exodus, you know, the great exodus of the Hyksos, uh, the exodus of uh, uh, of Pharaoh I, um, and even Akhenaten. A lot of these people went out to Greece and populated Greece. So if you look at early Greece, all of the influences upon the Phoenicians and the Greeks were all Egyptian, if you look at their statuary. And I think a lot of people went out. One of them, of course, was the uh, Spartans, because it says in the, uh, um, uh, in the Old Testament, in the books of Maccabees, it says the Spartans and the Israelites are cousins. Mm. And so it's likely that the Spartans were, again, renegade, uh, army and uh, kings, monarchs of Egypt who had been pushed out and took over southern Greece, the Spartan era, area. Because remember, Sparta was a very, very small um, ruling dynasty that ruled all of the helots, all of these, you know, serfs underneath them. So it was a very, very small community uh, who maintained the army and the administration and ruled over the, these people, which is exactly what you might expect if someone like Pharaoh I or Akhenaten or anyone else fleeing from Egypt might have achieved right. the subjugation of this population down in um, southern Greece and called it Sparta. Um, so, yeah, so there are many reasons why the Ptolemaic dynasty might be related uh, to the original Egyptian dynasties. And of course, Alexander the Great did become Pharaoh of Egypt. That was one of his primary ambitions, was to become Pharaoh of Egypt. And uh, from the, that, we get uh, Cleopatra. Um, but then we, we move into the era of Cleopatra, and we we, we get this lost daughter of, um, of Cleopatra. So um, she was, uh, as it were, married to... Um, uh, to Caesar, Julius Caesar. He was killed on the Ides of March, and uh, um, Cleopatra had to flee from Rome. And uh, Cicero is uh, concerned because he doesn't want a scion of Caesar uh, to become the next Caesar. So his suspicion was that Cleopatra was pregnant when she left. And he's very concerned about that. But later on, the problem goes away. And there are only real two reasons why the problem might go uh, away. Either uh, she had a miscarriage or the child was a girl ah. because a woman could not become Caesar. And I think that was the latter. So uh, Cleopatra had another daughter. So she had um, Caesarian, who was supposed to be a son of Caesar, but he was never acknowledged as a son of Caesar for some strange reason. Then she had this lost daughter. Then she had a, another daughter and son, Selene uh, and Helios, when she was with Mark Antony. Um, so they were the children of uh, Cleopatra. So then we move on about 20 years, and um, Octavian is 
now the uh, uh, emperor of uh, Rome, and he has to sort out his borders. And so he gives the king of North Africa, Mauritania, uh, Mauritania they call it, and he gives him Cleopatra Selene, the daughter of Cleopatra. Uh, so that's quite a prize for this minor monarch in, in Northern Africa to get a, a daughter of Cleopatra as a wife. Mm -hmm. And then he goes to his eastern borders, and he, Rome had had many disputes with the, the Persians, the Parthians, and they'd lost many legions. So this was their mortal enemy, was the um, Parthians. And so he gives the king of Parthia, who's Phraates IV, he gives him a courtesan, a prostitute, called Thea Musa Orenia. And you've only got to read this and think, well, that's not going to work. You know, you, you can't give this, this powerful monarch a courtesan um, as, as a diplomatic bride. Right. He, he can find his own yeah. courtesans. Yeah, I'm sure he had many. Yeah. <laughs> but he was so impressed with this courtesan that he made her his chief wife. And she became Queen Thea Musa Orania, the queen of Persia, Parthia. And there's only one way of making this story make sense in that she was a the lost daughter of Cleopatra. Cleopatra. Yeah, okay. Uh, and that's why a Cleopatra turns up among right. he, the wives of, of Frates. He didn't get a courtesan. He, he didn't get a normal courtesan. He got he got a, a, a secret heir to one of the most famous royal families, you know, in, in that and near history. Yeah, uh, but then she got kicked out of, of Persia. So this, uh, in, in, in about, uh, I think it was uh, 2 BC, she killed her husband. She was reputed to have poisoned her husband and married her son, Phratis. And um, Lovely. she may have married, well, well, they always did. Remember Cleopatra married both of her brothers, um, even in Judea. Um, but the second married his uh, his sister Berenike. Yeah, uh, Akhenaten married three of his daughters. Ah, I, I didn't know about the marrying kids. I, I knew that people married their siblings, but kids, I didn't. I, I, this is that's new to me. Yeah, I mean, this was this was fairly fairly common. Um, but also, she would have needed maybe to marry her son because she needed a male consort in order to become the queen of all Parthia. And we have the coins because. Uh, a lot of people ridiculed this uh, rival story by Josephus. So we, we get a lot of this information from Josephus and Flavius. And um, people said it was fabricated. But then her coins started turning up in, uh, in Persia. And so we have these coins of, of, of Theomusa and Phratases on the same coin. But anyway, she got kicked out in about AD 4. And she had to go across to Syria uh, um, to escape the Parthians, the, the Persians. And here, effectively, we have the nativity story. Because the nativity never made any sense. So the nativity is this odd story about a king. <coughs> and Jesus was, of course, called a king. Um, who didn't have a palace, who was in a state of poverty, who had to find a possibly a, a stable or whatever to stay in, and, 
and uh, a son was uh, born at this very time. And the Persian Magi came to honor this particular birth. And you've got to wonder well, why on earth would the Persian Magi be interested in a Jew in Judea or Syria? Where does that come into the story? Uh, and the answer is, in, in biblical terms, it doesn't. It makes no sense. But in terms of this particular story, it makes every sense because the problem always was that Jesus was called a king. And I've always taken that literally. Nothing to do with carpenters. He was a real king. He was called a king at his birth and, and at his crucifixion. Um, but how can you have a monarch who's disappeared from history? Where is this lost monarch? But of course, in this story, we have have a lost monarch. We have the lost queen, Theomusa Aurania, who nobody knows about unless you're deep into these texts. Um, we have a, 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 a lost uh, um, son of Theomusa, uh, who will be called King Abgarus of Edessa, who again nobody knows of. Uh, and here we have this lost monarchy who is now in a state of poverty. Well, well, actually, it wasn't quite poverty, but they didn't have a palace to stay in because right. they were on the move. They'd just been kicked out of um, Parthia. Uh, so they're on the move. They're looking for somewhere to stay. They might be in, in a stable of some nature. And these are the very pe people who would have the Persian Magi come to the birth. I mean, that just never made sense. But he, here is an ex-queen of uh, Parthia and a possible heir to the throne of, of Parthia, being born somewhere in Syria, maybe. Um, and of course, the Persian Magi, the three kings, would come to see this birth and honor it because he might become the next king of Parthia. And that is the nativity story. So I, this is what I like about my work. It's all taken from original text. I'm not making any of this up. It's all substantiated from original text. And I have all the references in my books. Um, the thing I like about it is that the original story never makes sense. Whether it's the Old Testament and Joseph's story and all of those Moses stories and Exodus, none of it makes sense. Right. And the Jesus story and the Saul and everybody else. But under my interpretation, suddenly all of these nonsensical stories make perfect sense. Right, and all the and other stories well. in so the, the Bible... Stories yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, right. You you, def you you definitely have the have the connective tissue. I mean, the 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 biblical stories. They, I mean, yep. basically, they borrow from earlier stories, which you know are probably also stories. But you know, the Moses story is Sargon. The, the Jesus story is Mithras. You, you know, uh, you have you have sort of these uh, you know stories that were you know from the region that that had you know the the, the Noah story is is, is sort of the uh, Sumerian. Story. So, uh, you, you know, you have sort of these older stories that are just conscripted, uh, uh, and, but yours is a historical line that preserves the monarchy, with, you know, which, uh, you know, take, takes you from basically, you know, uh, Abraham straight through to Jesus and, and, and I suppose beyond. Uh, the, the, the beyond is always the, the great mystery. But, uh, but yeah, so, um, so the, Jesus is the son of a daughter of uh, Cleopatra who and a Parthian king. Uh, 
is 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 and 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 as such, the uh, Parthians, Persians took a, a great interest in this, and uh, at least some portion of them. And then they sent the three wise men, the three magi, three ambassadors, perhaps whatever interested parties to bear witness, is is you know, and and to uh, you know maybe to check to make sure their needs were met, sort of thing. Yeah, um, and he would have been the next generation down, of course. He wouldn't have been a son of uh, Theomusa. He would have been a son of Queen Helena. Ah, grandson. Who I place as being, yeah, the daughter of Queen Helena. is another of these famous queens who's gone missing from history. Uh, Queen Helena, who I say was the daughter of uh, Theomusa Orania, who became the queen of Judea in the 1850s. And people who read the book, story will not know that uh, they had a, a Jewish queen in the 1850s who ruled over uh, um, over Judea and she's known as Queen Helena and she's been airbrushed from history once more because they didn't want you to know anything about these people and the, the real mystery is who was Queen Helena because we, again we get this from the works of Josephus and he says that Queen Helena was the um, Queen of Adiabeni. Adiabeni is supposed to be over by Mosul, way down in Iraq. Uh, and it makes no sense because there is no evidence for Queen Helena down in that region. And this remained a big mystery to me for quite some time because I didn't even know anything about the city of Edessa at this time when I'm doing this research and I'm writing this book. And this, suddenly this book took a sort of 90 degree left turn because I found some information that I had no idea about. Uh, um, so I'm doing this research into uh, Queen Helena, and I suddenly discover uh, from the Syriac historians, so we're talking about Moses of Corinne here and John the historian, uh, who have a completely different tradition, because remember that they were uh, completely separated from Western traditions. Uh, they were separated off behind the Council of Nicaea, behind the Council of Chalcedon and behind the Iron Curtain of Islam. And so the Western Christian Church could do nothing about what they were writing and what they believed in. Because they were Syriacs, they were part of the Eastern Church, completely mm. different to the Catholic Church. And they had different traditions about the same stories. And uh, Moses of Corinne, very interestingly, says that Queen Helena of the Adiabeni. Who Josephus writes about was married to King Abgarus of Edessa. Ah, ah, now that's interesting because we have no history of Adiabeni whatsoever, but we do have some history about Edessa. And she was the queen of Edessa. She was the, the queen of King Abgarus. Now, now Edessa is Gobekli Tepe, basically. There you go. That's, if anyone knows their history of Gobekli, that's Edessa, it's San Lerfa, right next door, just north of Haran. So we're back into the lands of Abraham again, just north of Haran, in northern Syria. Well, it's, it's now in uh, Anatolia, but it used to be in Syria. Those are the lands they took over. And my guesstimate is that Adiabeni did not exist. It was actually a pseudonym for Edessa. And they were given, according to Josephus again, they were the Babylonian Jews who came out of uh, Parthia at this very time and were given lands in the east 
of Syria by Emperor Octavian. And they say Herod, but I think it was mainly Octavian that, that made this deal because Rome wanted a buffer state in between them and Parthia to stop all of these wars between these two um, competing regions. And so they set up these Babylonian Jews who had come out of um, out of uh, out of Parthia. Remember, there were lots of Jews in that region because of the Babylonian exile, of course. So there had been Jews there, and they called them the Babylonian Jews. But I think that they were also closely linked to uh, Queen Theomusa Aurania because the story is identical. Um, and they were given these lands in the east of Syria, so that's all the way from Edessa. Uh, all the way down to Damascus, pretty much, um, was their strip of land in order to separate Rome from Parthia. And they ruled that as an independent principality. And it was a very, very wealthy independent principality. They set up Edessa. They set up Palmyra, which was the richest um, town in the whole of the Roman Empire. And so I think, because the... Historians have this, this difficulty with places like Palmyra. They said, oh, it, it was a trading city in the desert, and therefore it became rich. And you think that a trading city, trading goods across the desert doesn't suddenly become the wealthiest city in the whole of the Roman Empire. Um, it became rich because when Theomusa Aurania uh, uh, fled from Parthia, it's pretty obvious that she took half of the Persian treasury with her. That's how they became so rich. Um, and they used that wealth to set up this principality, an independent principality, supposed to be free of Roman taxes. But of course, later on, Rome came along and tried to tax it, and that caused a tax dispute with Odessa. So we have this principality, and my uh, um, argument is this principality is linked to the gospel story. So uh, we, we have this from, uh, from Acts of the Apostle. So uh, I should, should perhaps read this. So we get lots of um, possible inferences to the Edessan monarchy. And perhaps the best one is from Acts 11.28, when they have a prophet called Agabus. And of course, myself and Professor Robert Eisenman both say that Agabus must be King Abgarus, the king of Edessa, because they're talking about the famine relief down to Jerusalem. And of course, Queen Helena, who was the queen of Edessa, was famed for her famine relief to Judea in the late AD 40s. It's the same topic, it's the same story, and it's the same people. And so Agabus must be King Abgarus, the king of Edessa. But what does it say about this? It says, there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified the spirit that there would be a great famine throughout the world which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. So this would have been uh, late AD 40s, maybe early AD 50s, but probably AD 48. Okay. Then the disciples, every man according 
to his ability, determined to send famine relief to the brethren which dwelt in Judea, <clears throat> which they did, and they sent it to the elders there by the hands of, of Saul and Barnabas. Ah, ah. Now that's the problem for the gospel story, because what it's saying is that Saul, St. Paul, was a, an ambassador of Edessa. That is how close Edessa is to this gospel story. Saul, <coughs> the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. Right, Paul, changed his name to Edessa. Paul, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, he changed his name to Paul. He was called Saul. I always call him Saul because that, that's his real name. Sure. Um, <coughs> although he might have had another name. But uh, um, Paul just means the junior. So he was the younger son. Paul means Paul, the junior. Oh. So he's Saul Jr. Um, because I think his elder brother was, was Barnabas, the guy he used to go on these expeditions across the Mediterranean with. I think that was his elder brother. And that's why he gained, gained the name Paul. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah, this is a problem because this, this means that Edessa is central to this story which nobody has ever said before. I'm the first person to have ever said this, and it's a real troubling story for um, scholars of, of New Testament history. Um, because, 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 um, it means that Antioch, the famous Antioch that all of the apostles keep going up and down to, was Antioch Edessa. It wasn't Antioch on the coastline, you know, of north uh, northwestern Syria, Edessa was called Antioch, and so when the disciples are going backwards and forwards uh, um, to Antioch, it's talking about Edessa and the Edessan monarchy again, and this has a direct parallel with the works of Josephus because there is a an odd thing in the works of Josephus is that you can get a, a, a electronic copy of all the works of Josephus, and Josephus wrote all, all about this region in this era. And of course, he doesn't really mention the book of Jesus, which is a real problem. Uh, but you can put in to a search mechanism for the works of Josephus. You can put in Edessa. You can put in King Abgarus, King Manu, and it'll just say, uh-uh. Thing found. Hmm. And yet these people were central to this gospel story and to the first century story of the Jewish revolt. And yet Josephus never mentions them once. They've been deleted from history. This is why you can't find them. This is why it's difficult to link them up with the gospel story. But they are there. They were central to the gospel story. When Saul was up in uh, um, in uh, Antioch, he was at Edessa. When Saul had this argument with Peter uh, about circumcision, because of course Saul didn't really like circumcision, whereas um, Paul was sitting on the fence and, and various other people were, were more uh, strict about these sort of things, and they were having these arguments. They were having those arguments in Edessa. And then they all went off down to Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council, that famous council with um, James, the brother of Jesus, 
where they were trying to decide because the problem was they wanted to decide whether the adescents had to be circumcised or not. <coughs> uh, the adescents weren't circumcised, uh, but they wanted to be Jews because Queen Helena had become a Nazarene Jew. She had undergone seven years of initiation to become a Nazarene Jew. Uh, but there was this big debate as to whether they would be circumcised, and Saul was saying, no, you don't need to be circumcised, because he had his new um, Rome-friendly, simple Judaism, I call it, where you didn't have to abide by all of the tenets of Mosaic law. And of course, other people like James were saying, you have to, etc. So they had this council of Jerusalem, and James decided that the Edessans didn't actually have to get circumcised. And so they sent Saul back up again to, you know, say to the monarchy up there that you don't have to be circumcised. Deliver the good news. This was of important of, yeah, the good news. But it may have been slightly different to that. We'll come on to that in a minute if we've got time. But this is important because remember, Queen Helena of Edessa was the queen of Judea. This is why it was such an important topic. They were not talking about, you know, a, a, a few acolytes. It's over in Antioch, Odessa. They were talking about the royal family who was also uh, the royal family of Judea. She was the queen of Judea. So where does... Queen Helena of Judea. She had the largest... Who? who uh, I, well, you made she it... She had the largest... I'm sorry, go ahead. Finish up. <clears throat> well, I was just going to say she had the largest palace in Jerusalem and the largest tomb in Jerusalem. Gotcha. So she was the queen of Jerusalem. All right. Two things. One, one might be small and one is large, obviously, which I have a feeling you're going to get to. But you, you mentioned the term Nazarene Jew. I don't, I don't know exactly what that means. And the other thing is, I'm sure this is the, the, the surprise or the twist that's going to lead to the end, but who, who's Jesus? <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, the Nazarenes, uh, were a well-known sect of Judaism. Um, in the Old Testament, they're called the Nazarani. And, they, they were known as the separated. And, and a lot of modern historians trying to separate them off from the Nazarene in the New Testament, but they're quite obviously the same sect because it means the same. It means to be separated. Um, to be separated in terms of um, a, a monk in a monastery. So people like the Essene, who were separated off from normal society, they were the Nazarene. Uh, and it was um, initiatory. Um, sect. You couldn't just join it. You had to go through seven years of initiation to become a Nazarene. And Jesus was called a Nazarene. Um, so we get that from, I'm just going to get a um, reference for you. <clears throat> we get this from Acts 24 5, uh, where Saul himself is being called a Nazarene. He is being called a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. So it's, this is most certainly a, a sect, a religious sect. Um, and they don't like the Nazarene, of course. Uh, this is part of the fourth sect of Judaism who started the Jewish revolt. And of course, Jesus was called the Nazarene right. in Matthew 2.23. Now they try and say because he came from Nazareth, but of course, Nazareth did not exist in this era. There is no mention of Nazareth whatsoever. So it's quite obvious that he was a Nazarene of the Nazarene sect, the same as Saul was. 
Um, and this is a well-known sect, and we have information from in, in uh, um, the book Heresies. So they describe uh, the Nazarene, and the Nazarene, part of the religion of the Nazarene is they venerate the um, uh, primeval Adam. And the primeval Adam is a, a eunuch, or maybe um, androgynous. And so that spawned the cult of the castrated. And uh, I think that the cult of the castrated probably comes from Pharaoh Akhenaten. So we're going back to Akhenaten again. If you look at any of the statutory of uh, Akhenaten, he's displayed uh, without any genitalia. So, and he's displayed in a sort of uh, vaguely effeminate sort of form. He is the primeval Adam because we've already linked Akhenaten with Adam anyway, uh, that were worshipped by the Nazarene. And that spawned the cult of the eunuchs. And of course, Jesus had a cult of the eunuchs. And again, people won't know about this because it's not preached from the pulpit. But Jesus asked for his, his disciples to become eunuchs, to be castrated. And this comes from Matthew 19, 11. So again, it's, this is all from the original text. It's just a, a different interpretation of what, what the texts say and looking at, at texts that people will not, not look at. I was having a discussion with a, um, a Christian historian the other day and his eyes were going up and down as, <laughs> as soon as I mentioned castrated disciple. Yeah, it's sort of the opposite of a uh, fruitful and multiply, right? Uh, I mean, unless you get fruitful and multiply, then you get castrated. <laughs> well, these were the galley, um, and the galley were a famous priesthood in Galilee um, who were all eunuchs. So Jesus said to his disciples, this is Matthew 1911, um, Jesus said, all men cannot receive this saying except those to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs that were born from their mother's womb. There are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs by men. And there are some eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Direct request for the disciples to become eunuchs if they could accept it. Right. Now, this didn't have to be all of the uh, disciples. It was mainly for the... Um, chief disciple and the disciple who looked after the uh, sacred stone uh, because the, the chief symbol of Nazarene uh, Judaism and of the uh, sect of Jesus and James was the holy stone and the holy stone in Arthurian legend is called the, the holy grail ah. that's where we get the holy grail from but it was a holy stone, it was a meteorite and that's why we get so many uh, references to building and, and stones within the gospel text. It's why Jesus was the cornerstone. Uh, it's why his first disciple was called Simon. And Simon was given the title Peter Kephas, the stone, because he looked after the sacred stone. Now, the people who looked after the sacred stone were called the Galilee or the Galileans. And remember, Peter and Jesus were both called Galileans because they were 
priests of the holy stone. This is a famous stone, and we, we know all about this stone, um, but we, you have to infer it slightly from the gospel text because they don't mention it directly, uh, but it's called the El Gabal. So if you want to look it up, just look up the El Gabal. Um, it became the primary symbol of Emperor Elagabalus in the uh, early third century. He took it to Rome, but it's quite obvious from the imagery because we have images of this. We know exactly what it looks like. Um, it was in Edessa, the Edessans owned the Elagabal in the first century, in the second centuries. But they kept it in the Ark of the Covenant. So we have these images from Edessa on their coins of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant contained the sacred stone, which was the Holy Grail, which was known as the Omphalus or the Elagabal. Um, but then it was taken down because later on, we'll come on to this, um, it was taken down to a Mesa in central Syria. And we have images of it there in a temple in Syria. And it's conical. It's, it's not very big. It's probably only about, about 60 centimeters tall. Uh, what's that about two foot in old money uh, um and it's conical so it's not terribly big and then in the third century early third century it was taken to rome by emperor elagabala us and he put it into the um, temple of the elagabal in rome and we have, have pictures of it from rome of course so this was the cult of the sacred stone and the priests who looked after this sacred stone were known as the Galli or the Galileans. And remember that Jesus and Peter were both Galileans. It says so in the New Testament. So there was no, nothing but inconsistent have, about being a Nazarene and a Galilean? No, because it's not referring to locations. The Nazarene were a sect, a separated sect like a you know monastic society. Mm -hmm. And the Galileans, it didn't mean Galilee. It meant circle. Galilee means circle in Aramaic, uh, and it, it, it was this region was called Galilee because the primary symbol, second primary symbol, as you might say, because we've already seen one of their symbols, the second symbol, primary symbol of Judaism was the zodiac. And again, you won't get this from standard uh, Christianity or standard Judaism. But all of the early uh, synagogues that have been unearthed in, in, uh, um, in Judea and Jordan all have a zodiac on the floor. The best of these, uh, which has been preserved, is the Hamat Tiberia zodiac on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, just below Tiberias, uh, which is a standard zodiac, the same as the zodiac we would have now, um, with the same imagery, the same animals. Uh, except it goes backwards instead of forwards because it's a processionary uh, zodiac, not a monthly <coughs> zodiac. So it's a zodiac that counts off um, the millennia, not the months. Why did the... Um, okay, and, can, can I ask you, I mean, you may not know the answer to this, and maybe it's just balderdash, but I have heard that there's 13 zodiac signs, and then one of them sort of got tossed out, uh, <laughs> Ochiolus, Ochiolus, I, I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation, um, and then I know someone else said there should be a 14th Cetus, I think they, they, they called it. Uh, are, are, is there anything to that that there should be a 13th or 14th, or uh, was it always 12? No, it's, it was always 12, but the 13th, of course, is in the center. So the 13th is the 
central image of the uh, zodiac, which is the Jesus character, the Helios character. Um, and so what you have, have is, is uh, these are big mo uh, mosaics. So this is four or five meters across. It's a big zodiac. And you have the standard uh, 12 constellations around the outside. And in the center, you have the sun god. And remember, this is a Jewish, <laughs> this is a Jewish zodiac mm -hmm. in a Jewish synagogue, all in Hebrew. But the central character is the Greek Helios. It's very heretical, hugely heretical. Um, and he is the Jesus character. And on the Hamat zodiac, Helios is holding the blue-green spherical earth in his gravitational grasp. So the, the, um, <coughs> the heliocentric model of the um, solar system was well known in this era. And the spherical nature of, of the Earth was well known to these Nazarene Jews. Um, but of course, what we have here is the round table. <coughs> we have the Jesus character in the center, surrounded by his 12 constellations disciples. That's what the 12 disciples was all about. It was a zodiac. And when we go on to Arthurian legend, we have the Arthur character surrounded by his 12 knights of the round table. The round table is a zodiac. And Arthurian legend makes that perfectly clear when it says that the round table of Arthur was a copy of the last supper table of Jesus. Hmm. I wonder why 13 is a bad luck number then. Uh, because the Templars were all rounded up and killed um, on uh, October the thirteenth. So, so it really is 13th. just it's just because of that. It's it's okay. That's 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 yeah. fine. Um, yeah, I mean that, that that's how long these traditions can uh, can persist. That comes from the Knights Templar in thirteen oh seven. It's funny because thirteen is also a holy number in. Uh, like in, in a lot of uh, Mesoamerican, like they have uh, staircases 13, 13, 13, to get to 52, you know, but it's always 13. So uh, it's sort of the same thing. Yeah. Um, yes, to get up to 52, part of the um, uh, part of the standard playing card deck, isn't it? Yes. Oh, yeah, that's it. Um, yes. So uh, we, we have this, this group of people. Their primary symbols are the zodiac and the holy stone, which is a meteorite. Um, but the priests of the holy stone had to be castrated, uh, and so we and they were called Galileans, remember? And Jesus and Peter were both Galileans, and we have a description of these people um, from Josephus Flavius. So Josephus Flavius says of the Galileans, uh, the Galilee indulged themselves with feminine wantonness. They decked their hair and put on woman, women's garments and smeared uh, themselves with ointments that they might appear very comely. And they had paints under their eyes and imitated not only, not only the ornaments, but also the lusts of women. But while their faces looked like the faces of women, they killed with their right hands. And while their gait was effeminate, they attacked men and became warriors and drew their swords from under their finely uh, uh, dyed dresses and ran everybody through that they alighted upon. So the, the Galileans, remember Jesus was a Galilean, they wore women's dresses because they were the priests of the Elegabal, but they were armed. And they were 
uh, soldiers and knights, just like the knights of the round table, because this was a part, part of the Jewish revolt. We haven't talked about the Jewish revolt, really. This was a revolt era, and so there was a lot of killing going on. Um, and the Church of Jesus and James was, was behind a lot of this. And people might say, well, this is ridiculous, you know, you, you can't have the disciples in dresses, you know, with, with uh, eye makeup and, and weapons under their dresses. But um, if you go to um, Rome and to the Vatican and you see a conclave, what do you see? You see all of the, the, the bishops all arriving uh, to the Vatican wearing dresses, with, red dresses. With about two feet tall conical headdresses. <laughs> yeah, and with a headdress as well. Yeah, nothing has changed. They're still all wearing the same dresses because remember the Peter character who I link up with uh, um, from for another reason uh, was wearing a red dress, not just any old dress. And of course the bishops um, and the cardinals, they all wear red dresses in exactly the same fashion now as they did then. They are all Galileans, um, although they don't say whether they're castrated or not, but there we go. Um, but um, yeah, that was the original religion that they were talking about. It was the, the um, Church of Jesus and James, and it was, you asked who was the Jesus character. Well, we've just been mixing in the Edessan royal family with this story. And what I've done, because I saw this the very first time I started looking at this, uh, way back um, uh, in the 1990s when I wrote my first book, and it was pretty obvious to me that the timeline is wrong within the, the um, New Testament story. So, again, going back to basics, all of these people are missing from the historical record. How do you achieve that? Either you're looking uh, in the wrong uh, location or you're looking in the wrong era. And I, I think in this case, everybody is looking in the wrong era. Someone deliberately misplaced the um, timeline to make the Jesus character appear in the 19, in, in 1920s, in the AD 20s, uh, to be crucified in AD 30. That's not when it happened. This was a Jewish revolt story. This was a, a tax revolt against Rome because of, by the Odessan monarchy. And so all, all of this actually happened in the AD 60s. And I proved that way back in the 1990s um, when I said that uh, um, the biblical Saul was Joseph of Flavius. You can't go through that now because it's too, too much information there. <laughs> But if, if you take that as being true, it must alter the timeline because Josephus Flavius was not born until AD 37. Uh, and, but the, the life of Saul and the life of Josephus was exactly the same. And one of the things he ends up doing is Josephus Flavius becomes the army commander in charge of Galilee. And for two years, all he does is chase a guy called Jesus around Galilee, Guamana. And we get exactly the same in Acts of the Apostles. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? They were both persecuting this guy called Jesus around Galilee in the AD 60s. It was a part of the Jewish revolt story. 
uh, uh, and the leader of the Jewish revolt, again, lost from history largely, because people don't know who these people are. Uh, the leader of the Jewish re revolt was a king of Edessa. And again, you won't see that even if you go to respected historians and look up the history of the Jewish revolt, they won't really say anything about it. They certainly don't say much about it in Wiki. <clears throat> but Josephus Flavius is quite clear. The leaders of the Jewish revolt were the king and princes of Adiabeni Edessa. They led the revolt. They started the revolt when they destroyed the uh, legion of Cestius, the Roman legion, uh, back in AD 66, I think it was, something of that nature. And they, they were the last people to surrender to Rome, surrendering to Titus uh, in AD 70, were again the uh, king and princes of Edessa, Adiabeni. <coughs> These were the people who organized the Jewish revolt. And it was a tax revolt against Rome. We'll see if we, we have enough time to go through all of this. But it was a tax revolt against Rome. And the leader of the king of Edessa at that time, who led the Jewish revolt, was called King Esus Manu. Esus Manu. Of Edessa. So Esus Manu. Jesus. Precisely. It's not a Judaic name. It doesn't come from Joshua or, or Yeshua. Um, it comes from Esus, which is why in the Greek it's Esus. Uh, it's why in, in the Arabic is Issa. His name is Issa in Arabic because it comes from Esus. That was the name of the king of Edessa. And he led the Jewish revolt in Judea because his mother was the queen of the Jews. And therefore he became the king of the Jews. That was his formal title. Okay, he was the king of Edessa as well, but uh, he was based mainly in Judea. Uh, uh, one of the sons, they spread their sons out in different locations, and he was the guy who was living down uh, in, in Judea. And he became the king of the Jews when Mary Magdalene anointed him with oil at the house of Simon at Bethany, if you remember, the anointing with spikenard oil. Uh, that's what uh, Christ means. Christ is not a strange spiritual title, you know, the Christ, the Messiah, it's, it's, you know, um, something very spiritual. It's not very spiritual at all. It just means the king. <clears throat> so Messiah and Christ just mean the king, the anointed king of the Jews. And he became the anointed king when he was um, uh, when he was anointed by Mary Magdalene at the house of Simon, Simon both of us. Um, and he started this revolt against Rome. He lost that revolt. And he was crucified for it. And so we have the story of the crucifixion, again from Josephus Flavius, who gives us the, the whole description of the crucifixion story. Um, people won't believe it because they are too invested in the biblical timeline and they're too invested in the biblical story. And so they ignore all this completely, even though it's pretty obvious what Josephus is talking about. Uh, so this is in AD 70, after the Jewish revolt. <clears throat> and Josephus, remember, Josephus has changed sides. He, he's now working for the Romans. He's now He used to be a Judean army commander in command of Galilee. He's now working for the Romans, and he's now a Roman army commander. Right, he's the um, Jewish Benedict like Arnold. Saul, he changed sides. <laughs> yes, 
Um, so he's coming back from Tekoa, uh, which is just to the south of uh, Jerusalem. It's uh, called Herodium. Uh, and he's coming up the Kidron Valley, and he sees the three leaders of the Jewish revolt being crucified. He's aghast at this, A, because they were his previous compatriots before he changed sides, uh, B, because he can see the political benefit of having a, um, um, having a hostage. There's no point having a hostage if you've just killed them. Um, it would be much better if you kept these people alive. And so he goes to the governor and he asks for them to be taken down early. Permission is given. He takes them down early from the cross. They're given medical attention. Two of them die and one of them survives. And of course, one of them would have been King Jesus Manu of Edessa. Perfect. I, that I think, is the crucifixion story. And I, I think this is a ahead. great place for us to stop. If you will come back and we can pick it up from there and we can then get into your <laughs> King Arthur because... I mean, we just changed. We just we just re-identified Adam and Eve, or properly identified Adam and Eve, uh, Moses, uh, <laughs> Jesus, and everyone in, in between. So I think this is a lot for people to take in. Uh, we're going on two hours, and I, I feel like there's a lot more. And I'm already contemplating like this being sort of like a New Year's two part, like you know, in the last week in December and then the first week in January, dropping the two part story to basically. Shock the world on the on yeah on the change of the year. I don't know if I'll do that or not. But will you, will you come back and fi and uh, finish up the story and then go into uh, the alternate King Arthur or the real yeah, King so we Arthur? We can do that. We can do that in another time. Yes, yeah. sounds like a good idea. That'd be great. There's a lot more material still to go. So yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we're at again. We're coming on two hours, and that that's. A pretty long podcast, and it's probably long for you, and it's long for me as well. Uh, but it's fascinating. This is this is amazing. I can't believe that you haven't gotten more something out of the historical community, even if it's just resistance and counter papers and things like that. But it it is fascinating. And listen, I'm not a historian. I haven't done my own research, but the way you line it up, it sure does make sense. It, it you know it, it sure does line up. So congratulations. But before I let you that's, go, that's the beauty of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, th that, thing, that's the things should make is, sense. Is, is, is it all matches up? Uh, yeah, I, I, I liken it to uh, a cross. Um, no, I used to liken it to a, a crossword puzzle, but now I, I, I call it a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, and you've got all of these pieces and you, you slot them in. And if you were talking about the, the wrong subject, so if you were making this up, the pieces would not fit. But the pieces in this jigsaw puzzle all fit together. And not only do they fit together nicely, but when you look at the picture it's portraying, it's giving you a, a cohesive image of the entire story. Um, and that's why I think it's a, a true history, because it all matches up. Yeah. We've explained miracles. We've, we've, we've explained Atlantis. I mean, I think we've done a pretty good job in two hours. Where can people... Oh, Go ahead. We've, we've got more miracles to go if you want to ask about those later. So, yeah, keep those, keep those on ice. Oh, I, 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 always. <laughs> um, where can people... Find you? Where can they find your work? Where can they support you? Where can they buy the books? Yeah, most of the books now are on Amazon. So if you look for something like Cleopatra to Christ, um, just below the name, it will come up with the uh, King Jesus trilogy. And then you can click on that and it'll give you all of the other books in that particular trilogy. Um, so there's the Amazon books. My Facebook site is quite active. 
I post a lot of interesting subjects on there, and that's uh, Ralph Ellis dot one four four on Facebook. I have uh, a video channel. It's sort of difficult. I'll give you the links, I think, for that because it's difficult to find. But anyway, if you come across any videos with a, a red and gold phoenix on the front of it, then those are my videos. I've got about 20 videos out. So um, that's always interesting. Uh, and yeah, um, I've, I've got lots of just other talks and videos I've done online. So there's, there's quite a bit of information out there. Okay, amazing. All right, well, folks, go check out that stuff. Uh, join his Facebook page or group or whatever it is. Buy the books. Uh, check the stuff out. Uh, if he sends me the links, I'll, I'll do the best I can to put them in the show notes. Um, but yeah, we're, we're going to hear from Mr. Ellis again. He said, yes, you heard it here. He's bound, uh, honor bound, Templar bound. Um, and uh, I, th I thank him again. I thank all of you for listening. Please rate and review. Let people know. They're, they're not going to hear this kind of stuff too, too many other, other places. Well, I actually, there are other places because I saw Mr. Ellis at least one other place. But, you know, my listeners tell other people they won't see it anyplace else. It's an exclusive. You know, it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a harmless lie. Um, and so, yeah, rate, review, tell your friends and listen in next week where more content in the Garden of Doom. And every now and then we will shake the world, which apparently we may have done here. So cool. All right. Mission accomplished. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Don't stop, we're the man that all new history. 